Welcome. My name is Yvonne Benninger-Rothschild. I'm the Executive Director of the EICC New York. This podcast is brought to you by the European American Chamber of Commerce, a platform where Europeans and Americans connect to do business. To produce this series, we have asked our members from across Europe and the United States to discuss current events and how they may affect transatlantic business activities. In addition to this recording, I invite you to listen to all of our podcasts. You can find them on our website at eaccny.com right slash podcasts. I hope you will enjoy the insights our members together with my team have put together. And I encourage you to subscribe to the EACC podcast series on your favorite podcast server and to rate and share them with your friends and colleagues. Hello, my name is Paolo Frazzini Melendez. I manage member engagement at the European American Chamber of Commerce in New York, and I'm also your host for this Brexit Musing series. So in this episode, we will hear from Paul Hughes and Damon Colt from Steptoe & Johnson as they discuss the key changes in European uh, competition law as well as UK competition law. This includes topics such as merger rules, enforcement, divergence, and more. So we have a lot of topics to discuss, and I think we're going to jump right into the content. Welcome to both of you. And now I pass it along to you, Paul. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm Paul Hughes. Um, I'm an English solicitor, a Belgian lawyer, and a recently qualified New York attorney based in Steptoe's Brussels office, specializing in EU competition law and have also a lot of experience in UK competition law. And I work very closely with my colleague, Damon, who will now introduce himself. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paolo. As Paul said, my name is Damon Colt. I'm an antitrust partner here in Steptoe's Washington, D.C. office. Uh, my practice focuses on, on all aspects of, of antitrust law, including uh, mergers, acquisitions, private litigation, class action defense, cartels, and so on. Uh, and also work very closely uh, with my colleagues in, in Europe, including Paul. Paul, Brexit is a, is a very thorny issue affecting many aspects of the EU-UK regulatory landscape beginning in, in January 1 of, of, of 2021. What will you be covering with respect to competition and antitrust law? Thank you, Damon. So I will be covering um, the Competition Act 1998 and Articles 101 and 102 of the EU Treaty, which deal with agreements that have anti-competitive consequences and which deal with unilateral abuses of significant market power, known in Europe as a dominant position. And I'll also be dealing with the UK and EU merger rules. What I won't be dealing with is state aid. So state aid is a hot political potato at the moment, too hot to handle, and as yet unresolved. And an ironical uh, situation, given that the UK sees itself as a free market force for good, but is haggling over industrial policy interventions. Great. Paul, will, will EU competition law continue to apply to UK-based businesses post-Brexit? Damon, yes, it will. So any, um, if I just uh, briefly expand on the references to the Competition Act 1998 and Articles 101 and 102, these legislative measures prohibit agreements which have as their object or effect the prevention, restriction or distortion of competition in the case of the 98 UK legislation in the UK and in the case of Article 101 in the EU. 
And at the moment, they mirror each other. So the UK law and the EU law are in sort of harmony. The big issue is that following Brexit, only the 1998 UK measure will have a direct effect on the activities of businesses based in the United Kingdom. However, any UK-based company cannot afford to ignore EU competition law going forward because if its activities are implemented in the EU or have an effect in the EU, they will be caught by the continuing EU legislative snare. So there will be a double regulatory burden if the UK diverges. Also, if the UK-based company has significant market power in parts of the European Union and abuses that position, for example, by engaging in a market foreclosure activity, it will also be caught. So there will be no immediate escape from EU law for those businesses that are active in the EU. And it may well be that going forward, the UK regime starts to diverge. It's worth noting that many of the per se or by object violations that occur in the European regime, for instance, resale price maintenance, minimum advertised prices, and so on, have their anchorage or origins in the single market goal that underlies a lot of EU competition law. So it may well be, as the two-part company on 1st January 2021, there will start to be differences. But those differences won't affect the liability of UK-based companies that are still doing business in the European Union. And Paul, how, how will enforcement work post-Brexit? So after the Brexit date of 1st January 2021, the European Commission will have no power to carry out on-site investigations, dawn raids in the UK, nor can it ask the UK regulator, the Competition and Markets Authority, to do it on its behalf. So Britain is going to become, the United Kingdom is going to become a third country for EU purposes. The European Commission can make information requests to the CMA or to companies, much as it does currently with American and Asian companies. But after the end of 31st December 2020, there'll be a greater chance of parallel investigations by the UK and EU authorities. Another critical issue is that English solicitors will no longer enjoy legal professional privilege. So anyone taking advice on EU competition law should note that if their lawyer is only qualified in England and isn't a qualified practitioner in an EU member state, then the advice they're receiving, if it's sent to them in Europe, will no longer be privileged and will be open to um, disclosure to the European Commission or an EU member state national competition authority. Can we expect to see divergence between the two competition law regimes post-Brexit? And if so, what might those differences look like? Well, as I said earlier, at the moment, UK competition law largely mirrors EU law with respect to agreements and practices that have an effect on trade within the European Union. The UK courts won't be bound by European court rulings, so they can start to develop their own jurisprudence and they won't be obliged to refer questions of interpretation of competition law to the European court nor will they be under an obligation of sincere cooperation. So the way it's worked to date is that national courts in each member state have had to refer to the European court issues of 
EU law, including EU competition law, that require interpretation at a higher level. So it's a pyramid structure with national courts referring up. And that allows the European court to develop a coherent jurisprudence. Going forward, UK courts will break free from that obligation to refer upward. And so they can start to change some of the rules. I mean, assuming that there's no legislative change and the law remains in place in the UK, although on the face of it, it may still replicate EU competition law, it may well be that UK courts start to adopt a more economic approach. So, Damon, we might see a continental drift, the tectonic plate shifting to mid-Atlantic as UK courts start to adopt, say, a more effects-based or economic approach than that that's been adopted to date by the European Court. But as I say, the European Court's jurisprudence will continue to apply to all those business activities that are conducted in the EU. So even if UK courts start to break free, businesses will still be bound by that European jurisprudence. So this sort of divergence, this uh, perhaps greater use of rule of reason will create a schism, but one that businesses will have to span or master. And Paul, how will Brexit affect private enforcement or civil actions post-Brexit? So after Brexit, companies will no longer be able to rely on European Commission infringement decisions made after the end of the transition period, so from 1st January 2021 onwards, as a basis for bringing on uh, bringing follow-on claims for damages in the UK courts. So to date, the English courts have been quite a magnet for civil litigation where parties sue, say, a cartelist for violating EU competition law. So then the high court's been very friendly to that approach, and, and the London courts have wanted this litigation brought within the UK. So they've tended to be quite permissive about allowing companies, even based in the European Union, to bring these civil suits for follow-on actions in the UK courts. So where there was a European Commission decision that fined a cartelist, everybody piled in bringing suit in English courts. Going forward, post-Brexit, those European Commission infringement decisions won't have uh, direct applicability and it's quite likely claimants will start to favour courts in the Netherlands or Germany for future claims that relate to EU competition law infringements. And UK claims are probably going to become quite parochial with claimants needing to show that harm was suffered in the UK. So although UK courts will no longer have to stay their proceedings um, to avoid uh, a ruling that might run counter to a European Commission decision, and although they'll be free to depart from European Commission findings and can substitute perhaps a more economic assessment, a different assessment from that reached by the European Commission, these claims are going to be largely focused on harm suffered in the United Kingdom. So it's going to be a smaller class of claimant that's coming to the court. And as I say, there'll probably be a migration of these claims, which has already started, in fact, to the Netherlands and Germany. So there'll still be civil suit in the UK courts. It'll just be more limited. And the Dutch, German and other member state courts will be the beneficiary as they become more popular uh, fora for these follow on claims. 
And Paul, what about what about merger control? How will Brexit affect merger control? And, and what should companies be on the lookout for? Well, at the moment, the UK merger control regime is quite distinct and different from that of the EU merger regulation. The EU merger regulation creates what's known as a one-stop shop. So if parties are making an acquisition, forming um, an enduring joint venture, full-function joint venture, then they have to notify the European Commission if the sales figures for the enterprises, both combined and individually at worldwide and EU-wide level, meet certain quite high thresholds. Once the UK leaves the European Union completely and is no longer subject to the EU merger regulation, UK turnover or sales will no longer be taken into account in calculating those sales figures, which means that there'll be fewer mergers falling within the EU merger regulation. And that means there'll be a greater fragmentation of merger control. So a greater likelihood of not meeting the thresholds through stripping out UK sales figures from the calculation as to whether the sales thresholds are met means you're more likely to have to file in Greece and Italy and the UK and a variety of member states. The UK merger regime will also not be subject to the one-stop shop principle at all in any event. And so this is going to lead businesses to have to make perhaps more complex assessments as to where to file, how to present their merger filing. And this will in fact potentially introduce greater cost. So for example, there will be filing fees in some jurisdictions, including the UK, uh, there are none at EU merger control level. And also there'll be a, a potentially divergent treatment of those mergers with national competition authorities in the EU or the UK's CMA, applying different concerns and treatments to the merger, potentially blocking it in some states and not in others, seeking divergent remedies potentially. So more cost, more time, more complexity. And in my experience, there's a greater likelihood of getting a merger cleared through the one-stop shop at EU merger control level through the European Commission. Uh, viewed from Brussels, many mergers do not seem to pose problems. On the other hand, the UK CMA, for example, has blocked numerous mergers this year, approaches quite local mergers with considerable granularity and is, is quite invasive in terms of what they demand and the likelihood of, of the merger being blocked. And it's also noteworthy that there are filing fees which are quite significant if you're making a merger filing in the UK. So this is going to create, create complexity and cost for businesses going forward. And Paul, given those complexities, what are your thoughts on the CMA? Do you think the CMA is going to be up to the task of handling all these issues? In a word, no, because um, it has a limited budget. It's had certain uh, additional financial resources handed to it, but it's now going to be handling a wider range of practices. So it won't have the ability to rely on the resources of the European Commission. So typically, historically, if you had a practice that affected, say, three member states, you'd uh, automatically assume the European Commission was going to be the party that dealt with that anti-competitive 
agreement or that allegedly abuse of a dominant position. That meant that national competition authorities could lay off the cost of an investigation that affected their market onto the European Commission. The CMA is going to be handling everything for itself without being able to rely on the European Commission or other NCAs, national competition authorities at all. So the budget is not going to be that much larger than it was before. They're going to be handling a lot more merger cases than they have been doing to date. And that means that these resources are going to be stretched quite thin. I know they've had a very significant uh, hiring spree. So one of the questions is going to be, what does this mean for agreements that might trigger the application of UK competition law? Well, if the UK courts start to break free and adopt a more uh, economic approach to the determination of whether agreements have an anti-competitive effect or not, perhaps there's going to be a body of jurisprudence that allows the, the parties to argue out their case in a way that will stretch the resources of the CMA further still. That might deter the CMA from pursuing cases which require an effects-based analysis. It's also the case that if the courts start to strike down some of these per se or by object violations as no longer being presumptively harmful to competition and start to liberalize in that area, again, the CMA won't have quite so many easy wins because historically the CMA has focused on these by object restrictions because they're quick wins. Once you've committed a by object restriction, you've got resale price maintenance or a minimum advertised price, or you've banned the use of the internet, that's uh, it's a slam dunk for the CMA. They just get to fine you. The only question is how much and when you decide to settle. So the CMA is going to have a difficult issue. It's got to deal with these merger cases. It's got to deal with a bigger raft of competition law uh, issues relating to anti-competitive agreements and the like. Not much more by way of resource. And the only issue will be if the jurisprudence in this area starts to become uh, more permissive, it perhaps won't be pursuing so many of these foreclosure-based um, anti-competitive agreements. So, Paul, you, you've touched on a lot of issues. I wanted to ask you, what are your big picture thoughts? How do you see things going forward? Well, Damon, I'm old enough to remember dealing with competition law before the Competition Act 1998. So in 1998, the UK chose to align its competition law with that of the EU completely. And I used to be, I think, a missionary in terms of going around the UK when with a national UK law firm trying to help partners in that firm understand the extensive effects of EU competition law and the extensive nature of the EU jurisprudence in this area. But I think good old English common law lawyers will have an inherent tendency to revert to type. And so will the judges. And my take is that not immediately, but over time, we're probably going to see quite a different body of law in the UK. So a much more limited category of per se violations. We're not going to be trying to create a single market. Hopefully we'll still have one if the Scots and the Welsh and the Irish don't break away. Um, so the position should become more helpful to business in one sense. What will be less helpful to business is that they'll have this double regulatory burden where they've got to keep abreast and keep track of 
any divergences between the UK position and the EU position as we go forward. Another issue will be whether the UK government decides to accelerate this divergence by changing the law through enacting different parliamentary measures. That would certainly speed things up. And it may well be what we see, for instance, in the field of state aid. We may also see a greater injection of industrial policy by the UK into areas such as merger control, which we've already seen to date. So, for example, strategic uh, assets such as important technology or defence capabilities are now subject to much greater merger control scrutiny. So I think the answer is we don't know. The government can speed things up. Even if they don't, the courts will probably slightly drift more towards a US model. And all I can say is it will mean more work for lawyers. Very good. Thank, thank you for those insights, Paul. Thank you, Paul and Damon. That was very, very interesting. We really enjoyed having you here today with us. So this concludes this podcast with Paul and Damon from Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you again for your thoughts regarding how we see the UK and EU competition law evolve after the end of the transition period on December 31st, 2020. And another thank you to our audience. We hope that you enjoyed listening to our program. Stay tuned for our next podcast where we muse about Brexit. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from the European American Chamber of Commerce, New York. Please remember to subscribe and rate this episode and be sure to check out the complete list of recordings on our website at eaccny.com write smash podcasts. If you have any thoughts or comments about this series, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to us at membership at eaccny.com to learn more about our work, how to get involved and how to join our transatlantic network.